Well, hello there, and welcome to the High Performance Business Solutions podcast series. This is Paul De La Garza, principal of High Performance Business Solutions, and we'd like to welcome you to a very special podcast. Uh, this is a gentleman with whom we have had the pleasure and the privilege to speak, and he has accepted another invitation, of course, so that he can tell us what he has been doing in the latest uh, several months. I speak of the one and only Bob Berg, the author of The Go-Giver. Uh, Bob, good day. How are you? Paul, it is always great to speak with you. Oh, you're a gentleman. Now, you have The Go-Giver, and then you did uh, The Go-Giver Leader. And you, you and John David Mann wrote this book. And through this book, Bob and John David Mann challenged wisdom about success. Now they're back with a new and equally compelling story about the power of genuine influence. And I look forward to speaking with you about this in business and beyond. We talk about a book that's called The Go-Giver Influencer. A little story about the most persuasive idea, which tackles the paradox of achieving what you want by focusing on the other person's interests. No, no, we're not talking about a self-sacrificial approach, but rather in such a way that all parties are going to greatly benefit. This results in both immediate and long-term success. Bob has spoken all over the world on topics related to the go-giver, as well as what he calls genuine influence. And while his total book sales number well above a million copies, his and Mant's original book has itself sold over 800,000 copies and has spurred an international movement. Their new book, The Go-Giver Influencer, might just be their most important book of them all. It is my pleasure to welcome Bob Berg again to the podcast of High Performance Business Solutions. It's great wow. to have you here, Bob. Yeah, what a nice introduction, Bob. Uh, well, well-deserved, and I don't think I did, I did you justice. But let's start. Let's go back with a couple of things. And I, and I have a number of questions here that I would really want to um, address with you, but I would like to ask you, you have been incredibly successful with the go-giver, the go-giver leader, um, the go-giver sells more. What prompted the go-giver influencer? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, influence has always been part of, of all of the writings that John David Mann and I have done throughout the go-giver series. Uh, at law number three in the original one was the law of influence. And, and I love that law. It's it, powerful. Oh, thank you. And in the, you know, go giver leader, it was a story about the power of leadership and influence. And as you know, Dr. John Maxwell says, leadership is influence, nothing mm -hmm, more, nothing mm -hmm, less. Exactly. Uh, what we wanted to do though, is really take the concept of influence and drive it deep. Uh, we believe that that influence, the ability to influence another human being in a very positive way is such an immense aspect of living a productive life and living a good life, a benevolent life. Uh, and yet we we kind of find there's a, a that the word influence is you know taken on its own meanings in many ways and is often interpreted in different ways. So we wanted to kind of clarify that and then of course, as we usually do, uh, in the form of a story, take it through the how-tos of how someone can become 
that effective, genuine influencer. Yeah, you know what? And it's interesting that you should say this because I have used the word influence in my coaching and in my discussions with my clients. And more often than not, people are very reticent to use the, the, the approach of influence because they have that connotation that influence is perhaps not uh, a positive thing. But you've, yeah. you and David Mann have actually managed to give it a context that more often than not is not, not thought about. You, you really position influence by promoting the interests of other people. So that's huge. Oh, thank you. Well, it's, it's the difference between persuasion, which is positive, and manipulation, which is negative. Because right. influence in and of itself is neither good nor bad. It's, it's, a, it's a general principle. It's sort of like the physical law of gravity. Uh, gravity exists as, as we exist on Earth. Gravity is a truth. Uh, it's neither good nor bad. Now, it manifests itself as good when it keeps us from floating aimlessly up into space. It manifests itself as bad when we walk off a seven-story building, okay? And it's the same with, with influence. Influence can be a blessing and a, or a curse, depending on how it's used and, and who is using it. So uh, persuasion and manipulation are both something that an influencer could use because both the persuader and the in the persuader and the manipulator, excuse me, both understand human nature. They understand human motivation, what drives people, but there's a huge difference. So they're, they're cousins, but one is the good cousin, persuasion. Mm -hmm. One's the mm -hmm. evil cousin, manipulation. <laughs> What's the difference? Well, I, I think that the, the difference was communicated brilliantly in a book that was published way back in 1987 uh, by Dr. Paul W. Sweat. It's called The Art of Talking So That People Will Listen, though it was much more about listening than it was about talking. And, and in this book, uh, what Dr. Sweat said, which I just thought was, was so beautiful, uh, he wrote that manipulation aims at control, not cooperation. It does not consider the good of the other party. It results in a win-lose situation. Uh, in complete contrast to the manipulator, the persuader always seeks to enhance the self-esteem, and I would add the position of the other party. Uh, so people respond well because they're treated as responsible, response-able, self-directing individuals. I think, Paul, what it comes down to is that a manipulator doesn't necessarily want to hurt or harm the other party, but if that's what it takes to get what they want, they'll do so. They're totally, they'll do that, exactly. Right. They're focused on themselves, and it's, it's all about themselves. Uh, with a persuader, that could never happen because in order for a persuader to feel good about the situation, they've got to know that not only have you come out ahead as well, but that you feel good about the situation as well. You know, it's interesting because you very succinctly put it on the go-giver on the law of influence that basically says your level of influence upon people is based on how abundantly you place their interests first. This has been probably one of the centerpieces of effective selling, which unfortunately a lot of people do not relate to because they just simply do not think about putting the interests of people learning about what it is that they need, what is it that they need to promote in order to really gain the influence and the confidence of the individual instead of just simply try to sell the product or service. And you really have been able to give it a very powerful context, very powerful in the sales 
and for that matter in the communication process. So oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bob, let me ask you, um, you mentioned, you made mention of the five secrets of genuine influence. There are five key areas. Could you please take us through that uh, one by one uh, and explain for our listeners exactly how that works and what is the benefit and the impact upon their own career, how this is going to really help them become more successful? Sure. Well, the first one is to master your emotions. And this is really where it all begins. The, the sages asked, who is a mighty person? And they answered, that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or of a potential enemy a friend. Uh, this is where it all begins, because it's only when we are in control of our own emotions that we're even in a position to take a, a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. Um, I think intuitively, we all know this, we all tend to respect that person who's able to keep their calm, who's able to remain calm when everyone around them is rattled, right? And yet, how often do we allow someone, based on what they've said or done, to push our emotional hot button? and we cause ourselves to feel badly or feel frustrated or helpless or mad and angry. And we say or do something that you know, we know is, is totally counterproductive to what we want to accomplish, yet we do it anyway. And, and, but we know better, so why do we do this? And I think really the answer is because we're human beings. And as human beings, we're emotional creatures. It's, it's how we're built. Now, we'd like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent, of course, we are. But we are basically emotion-driven. We make major decisions based on very limited, in, uh, or based on, on emotions, rather. And then we back up those decisions with logic. We rationalize. We right. tell ourselves rational lies, right? And we do this to justify that decision that we made or that action we took or those words we said that, or that email we sent without thinking it through, right? And uh, so, you know, it, it turns out to be not helpful. Now, what we're not suggesting is that you deny your emotions or forego your emotions. First, it just wouldn't work. It, it's contrary to human nature. But it, that aside, there's no reason to forego them. Uh, emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worthwhile. Um, the key is not to, to lose them or deny them. It's to control them. It's to be so, master of our emotions as opposed to they being the master of us. So it's, in other words, do not eliminate or put your emotions in a closet. Just simply manage them and control them. Is that correct? Yeah. My friend, Don DiScumacci, a great leadership uh, author, she, she says it best. She says, by all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. And I think that's so important <laughs> that. that, you know, we're at the wheel. Our logical mind is at the wheel. Our emotions are with us, but they're they're in the passenger seat. They're, they're tucked in safely by, you know, through the seatbelts. And, and the reason we say this is because we want our emotions to be part of things. Again, it, it's important. There's great wisdom in our emotions, but it's, it, it's, it's like a, a CEO and, and their board of directors. The CEO is the logical part of the mind. The board of directors, the emotional part. By all means, the CEO should consult 
the wisdom of the board of directors. We should, our logic should consult our emotions. What feelings are we getting? Why? What's this telling us? But when all is said and done, the CEO needs to make the decision. Our logical brain needs to make the decision if we want to create the environment where we're most likely making the best decision. Right. Okay, great. So that's master your emotions. That's one of the foundational components mm -hmm. of the five secrets of, of influence. What is the next one? The next one is to step into the other person's shoes. Now, you know, this is a saying we've all heard, right? Step into their shoes. And it sounds easy. But then you think about it, maybe it's not. Because most of us have different size feet, we can't step into their shoes. Literally, we can't step into that other person's shoes. Figuratively, we can't step into that other person's mind. Why not? Because we come from our own set of beliefs, right? Our own subjective truth. And so do they. We, we all grow up. We have a right. system uh, based on, on uh, upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows, you know, and, and it's interesting because our, our belief systems are generally etched, pretty much etched in stone. By the time we're a little more than toddlers, we grow up uh, living our lives subject to a, a, an unconscious operating system. So we think we're making these choices based on, uh, or these decisions based on conscious choice when we're really not. We're typically operating within an already set uh, belief system, but it's what we do. Now, other people do the same thing, but as human beings, and this is important, we tend to think that other people see the world basically the same way we do. How could it be any different, right? It's all we know. And most conflict, Paul, is the result of two or more people seeing the same basic thing from two different, different. people. Yeah. And not even realize it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they don't, and they take turns speaking, but yet they do not really digest the other's position. And that's where we say, this is how we step into the other person's shoes. We ask questions and then we listen. Just like anyone in sales, you know, how, how would we define sales? Sales is simply discovering what the other person wants, needs, or desires and helping them to get it. Well, how do you do that? You ask questions. You ask questions to discover what they're looking to accomplish. Okay. Then we, yeah, then we've got to listen, not just with our ears, but with our eyes. With well, our, you, you and David, forgive me for interrupting, but you and David Mann actually have a very interesting, perhaps different statement or suggestion that says, you need to listen with the back of your neck. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. Well, most of us, what we do is we listen just with our ears. That's the surface listening most people do. Yeah, in other words, we're listening, waiting our turn to speak, right? Uh, we're, we're willing to give them their two cents so that we can get in our 10 cents. So in other words, we take turns speaking. Right. Usually without really listening first. Without really so, listening. Right, exactly. Well, so what one of the mentors in the story, because there were two mentors in the story and two protégés, what one of the mentors tells their protégé is, is listen not just with your ears, but listen with your eyes, listen with your entire posture. Listen, he said, with the back of your neck. In other words, put your entire being into absolute, total laser focus on this person. When you do this, two beautiful things happen. One is you actually 
are able to step into their shoes. You now have a much, much better idea of what they're thinking and why. The second thing is when you do this, the other person feels heard. Yes, validated. Yes. Validated, exactly. They feel understood. And that's one of the, the biggest drives and desires of a human being to feel understood by and cared for by another person. You know, I, I just want to make an emphasis on this particular part because, unfortunately, this is probably one of the things that is often, often overlooked by sales professionals, which is ironic, that they really do not embrace, assimilate, or listen with the back of them, the entire posture, as you say, to their clients so that they can provide a solution. They just simply allow the person to talk and then they come up with a presentation or a statement that is often completely unrelated with what that client said. So this has got to be, in my opinion, as I look at the five, uh, the five uh, secrets of influence, this is probably one of the centerpieces, if not the centerpiece of the five, because of its power. Would you agree with that? Oh, sure, sure. It's just like when we talk about the discovery part of a sales process. Uh, you know, imagine a salesperson, and Paul, we don't have to imagine it. You teach this, and, and you know, we, we see this all the time. A salesperson trying to provide a solution without first understanding the problem. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, my God. All the time. That is it. That is it right there. That is exactly the unfortunate reality that more often than not takes place. So powerful stuff. Now, the next one is set the frame. I'm really eager to hear your words on this. How do you reset the other person's thinking? So I, how do you do that? Please tell us. This is so very important. When you set a proper frame or reset uh, a frame, you're basically 90% of the way to getting the results you want. And, And let me explain first very briefly what a frame even means. Uh, a frame can be defined as the foundation from which everything else takes place. That's why it's so important. Like, can I share a, my favorite frame story with you? That Please, has with absolutely. Well, I, I was in a Dunkin' Donuts restaurant, and you know me, uh, Paul, you know I'm a Dunkin' Donuts fanatic. Uh, yes, you are. I'm surprised you're not a stockholder. <laughs> I should be. And... Uh, and so I'm, I'm sitting there drinking coffee and reading, and there's a little boy, probably two, two and a half years old, a little toddler. He's running around the restaurant. When his parents call him over to the table, he starts walking over. And as he does, he takes a spill on the floor. He slips and falls. And he, he didn't hurt himself, you could, you could tell. But he was shocked. He was surprised. This was not part of his experience. So he didn't really know what to make of it. So, of course, the first thing he does is he looks over at his parents, the two people he trusts most in the world, to get their interpretation of the event. What happened... Interesting. Happened, right. He wanted to know what happens next. Now, I truly believe that had the parents gotten upset and panicky and, oh, no, are you all right, my poor baby? He'd have started to cry. But what the parents did, and they handled it so beautifully, they, you know, they walked over quickly, but, but very calmly. 
they had such a, a peaceful aura about them. They smiled at him and they applauded and they laughed and they said, oh, what a good trick. That looks like so much fun. And immediately the little boy began to laugh and have fun with it. What the parents did, and this is the key, what they did is they set a productive frame from which he could operate. And this is what we can do from the moment we meet someone. We create the frame. It could be something as simple, we use this in the book, as simple as an inside out you know, smile, right? Just from the heart smile that you're, you're setting the frame of being glad to meet them, glad to be with them. It's in the way you make them feel welcome. Now, the question is, what do you do when someone else comes to the table with a negatively set frame? Because right, if you right. buy into that, That's right. uh, again, it's not going to you know, be productive for anyone. Let's say, for example, you're about to do a sales presentation for a new prospective customer. You've never met them before. There's no real relationship uh, there. And uh, so the no like, and trust isn't necessarily there. And this person comes to the table sort of in a, with a defensive frame, if you will, right? Uh, uh, you know, she kind of lets you know that she's not an easy sell and she's just looking for the, and so forth. And that's okay. But again, we're not going to buy into that because that's, that's really, um, it's adversarial. It's not going to do anyone any good. So instead, let's, let's reframe this. We might say, and again, this is just a very generic situation. So you would, you would gear this to yours. What if you said something like, you know, Mary, while we've been able to help a, a lot of people with this product, whether or not it's the right solution for you, uh, we simply can't know without uh, determining, exploring deeper and determining whether it meets your specific need. Right, right. So, you know, please know our conversation, this discussion is really for both of us to discover whether or not that's so. And if it does, great. And if not, that's okay too. Well, when you say set the frame, this, that, that anecdote that you're talking about is powerful because essentially what I understand it to be is that the parents basically define the energy of the event mm. for that little boy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the question that I have for you is how important is it for a sales professional or for that matter a leader when speaking to a team, speaking to colleagues, to their their leaders or a sales professional how important is it for them to be conscious of the energy that they bring to a particular environment or a place so that they can set the frame accordingly and respond appropriately well i i, I think it's absolutely vitally important because the energy really is what sets the frame <laughs> right so if you go into uh, you know, let's say, uh, yeah, so I have a, a saying, just something I say that positive expectation, okay, so when you expect people to, to be a certain way, okay, a positive way, let's say, I say positive expectation works, but not for the reason most people think it. It has nothing to do with magic or, you know, just because you think it's someone else's. No, positive expectation doesn't change the other person. It changes you. And that's what changes the other person. Right. You know, so you go into a place expecting someone to be helpful or expecting your team to be excited or expecting this, this customer to be enthusiastic, what have you. You take on the uh, energy of a person who is grateful, who is thankful, who feels good, who, you right? And it's your energy that now touches their energy. 
You know, Bob, I'm going to tell you something that it's, that's perhaps going to be interpreted as an overstated compliment, but it really is an observation, and it's this. As I read your materials, as I, as I have said with you in, in one of your courses, one of the things that I've concluded is that you have taken some of the wisdom of the ages that more often than not is dismissed as philosophy that is not applicable or practical, and you've translated into daily living to a level that people really can digest it and assimilate it. What you just described, the, the description of setting the frame, the energy description that you made of those two parents and so forth, is so powerful in just the way that we interact with each other and clearly in the context of business. But you and David Matt have actually taken it one step further. And I think it's important uh, for our listeners to really understand that a lot of the stuff that you have done here is really engage truths of the ages and put it in the simplest form, but the most applicable form. And I have to tell you, I'm not only fascinated by that, I'm really deeply gratified because this, this wow. is huge. This is powerful. Yeah. And I've told you this before in person, but I want to reiterate this because every time that I ask you to explain something, it goes back to principles that have been in existence in some of the philosophy books and also in, in some cases some of the holy books and, and principles. And then you've, you've translated into really practical living. So kudos to you and thank you for, for doing that. That's huge. Oh, thank you. I, I take that as a, a great compliment. Thank you so much. No, it's, it's, it's really well-deserved, but it's an observation because I, I am fa- that's the reason why I'm such a fan of your material. Okay, let's go to the next one. Communicate with tact and empathy. Isn't that just a, essentially a, a necessity? Why well, is it so important in, in terms of genuine influence? Well, I'd certainly agree with you. It is a necessity. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's kind of what brings it home, you know, because right, you can right. do those other things. But if you can't communicate with tact and empathy, it's very difficult to to really take things to the next level. You know, my, my dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. And yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed that wow. because it's I a like reminder that. to me that it takes a strong person, it takes a mighty person to not just be reactive when someone says or does something. Uh, you know, as we alluded to earlier, to not just click back the uh, email uh, with, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Or with someone on, on social media that right, says right. something politically that you don't agree with and you just want to say, what are you, you know, right? So tact is really a way of communicating an idea to someone that they ordinarily may not uh, be agreeable to or, or, or appreciate, but doing so, Paul, in such a way that not only is this person not defensive uh, toward you and, and resistant to your ideas, but they're open to you and they're more receptive to your ideas because of the way you've communicated this. Uh, that's really the essence of, of tact. It's saying things in such a way, and I think Les Giblin in his wonderful classic, uh, How to Have Confidence and Power When Talking to People, uh, he put it, and I'm paraphrasing this, so, so please pardon me, uh, but he said, you know, tact is the ability to, to uh, communicate your point in such a way um, that, that both you, that neither you nor the other person 
uh, ego gets out of sort. You, you know, you leave the other person's ego as well as yours intact. Right, right. right. To do that, that takes tact. Uh, it means we think about what we're about to say before we say it. It means, yes, we edit our speech before we speak. It means we ask ourselves the question, uh, is what I'm about to say going to build or destroy? Is what I'm about to say going to make this person feel lousy about themselves or good about themselves? And, you know, once you begin doing this, it, I mean, it's, it's instantaneous. It's not something that you consciously think and think through. It happens in a nanosecond. But that's why tact is so powerful, because most people don't take the time to do that, to ask themselves the question, how is this other person going to feel about to it? Feel. I, yeah, I think 95% of getting the results you want when communicating with another person is basically how you make that person feel about themselves, about the situation, and about you. Now, empathy is sort of what makes tact possible. Sure. Um, it, the dictionary definition of, of empathy is the identification with or vicarious uh, experiencing of another person's feelings. But there's an issue with that, and there's a challenge. Just like we can't know what's inside another person's head because we're not them, we can't know what's inside another person's heart because we're not them. We don't necessarily know how they feel, and sometimes to say, I understand how you feel is not just wrong, but it's, it's very inauthentic because we don't know how they feel. We have no idea how they feel. But I think what, what empathy really is, is not necessarily that you understand how they feel. It's communicating that while you may not understand exactly how they feel, you understand they're feeling something and that this something is distressful to them and that you are there to help them work through it that you you validate the emotional position in which they're in yet yeah. you don't necessarily understand exactly what exactly. what they're going through that's huge that's huge okay um the last one let go of having to be right mm. yeah and this, this is, is so <laughs> this is probably one of the biggest i think one of the biggest uh, and most frequent conditions that I have seen in my, my uh, experience as a coach and as a leader, uh, it's yeah. just astonishing. And it's, it's, it's very human. You know, the fact is not only do we, we want to be right, but as a, you know, I think as a survival mechanism dating back to the cave person days, right. When every day was a matter of survival, literally, right. right. Um, you know, we, we defend our position. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, we all know people who, even when they're wrong, and they know they're wrong, they can't admit they're wrong to others, and they can't even admit it to themselves. This is where confirmation bias comes into play, and we hear that word more and more lately. What is confirmation bias? It's basically exactly what it says, that when you hear some new information or you come across some new information that confirms your already held biases, well, you accept it as truth. Mm -hmm. But when this new information uh, is contrary to your already held beliefs or biases, you ignore it. The problem with that is you can't learn that way. You can never grow. Uh, you can never know any more than you do now. And most likely those who fall victim to confirmation bias tend to not know as much as they think they do know. Um, Paul, when we say let go of having to be right, we don't mean you don't want to be right. We don't mean you don't prepare to be right. We don't mean that you don't, right? What we're saying is you let go of the attachment 
to having to be to right. To having to be right. Yeah. I need to ask you this question on this particular matter. Do you think that the more a person is validated either by their environment or by their self-awareness, that there's a less propensity of wanting to be right and then that the opposite is also true? I think the more comfortable we make someone feel about themselves with us, the more likely that person will be to, to let go of that because they don't feel a defensiveness. There's nothing to defend. Exactly. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you brought that up uh, or that, that you mentioned that because I think that that is another component of the, the anatomy of the dialogue between two people or even in a sales process. Yeah, and that's why when we're able to let go of having to be right, which, which might just mean that we're open to exploring another idea or another part of the idea, you know, being, being, um, letting go of having to be right, being open to other ideas doesn't mean you have to agree with those ideas. It just means you're going to open up. You're going to, you're going to open up your mind and explore. Um, but it's certainly, uh, you know, I think sometimes people nowadays almost think, well, if you, uh, if, if you do that, you're automatically, you know, relinquishing your belief. No, not at all. Right, exactly. You can speak. You, you, we never need to confuse, uh, let's say, tact and diplomacy with sacrificing your values. Okay, you can speak to other people. You can speak to everyone tactfully, kindly, diplomatically, uh, without ever compromising your your values. The two are that they are two absolute different things. And when you let go of having to be right, two wonderful things happen. One is you place yourself in the position of being able to learn more. You go into learner's mode. So you actually end up being more equipped, knowing more. But here's the big thing, and we alluded to this a moment ago. When the other person comes to understand, which they will very quickly, that you are not just looking to be right at all costs, certainly that you're not looking to be right by making them wrong. Now they're much more open to your ideas. Isn't that something? When you, when you let go of that, it changes, what I hear you saying is changes the entire dynamic between two people because mm -hmm. then the authenticity of communication truly, truly rises. Exactly. As opposed to a person trying to position themselves and wanting to be right in the other person to some degree, either avoiding or perhaps even resisting the message right. of the other party. So this is huge. A uh, couple of more questions. Um, <laughs> I am eager to hear you, your answer to this. You claim that there's one sentence that is guaranteed to prevent misunderstandings. Tell me about this. Well, this goes back to belief systems that we were talking about in, in the context of stepping into another person's shoes, first understanding what they even mean. All too often, again, people say things and both parties think they understand what the other person means, so they act from that, that premise. Uh, it, just an example, uh, let's take a, a corporate scenario. You've got a small uh, uh, work team and the team leader gathers everyone on Monday morning, first thing in the day, and says, hey, listen, uh, there's been a change in this project for this client. Uh, you all need to get your work in. We all need to have our work in uh, as soon as possible. Okay, boom. Now, it's end right. of day Friday at five o'clock. 
And of the four people on the team, only one person has their work in. The others don't. Well, why? Well, the first person, uh, uh, to them, as soon as possible, means you drop everything that you do and you get it done right away. And you've got a couple of days to do it. So they're done. Mm-hmm. The other, another person on the team, they come from another team where when the team leader said as soon as possible, it meant get your current work done first. And then after that, get the new work done, you know, quickly. Now, the other person came from a whole different company and on their last team, as soon as possible meant absolutely nothing. You just gave it lip service and then continued doing what you were doing. So you've <laughs> yes. got the term as soon as possible and you've got several different definitions. So what if one of the team members had thought to say to the team leader, uh, hey, Pat, uh, just for my own clarification, that's the tack part, <laughs> just for my own clarification, right, right. When, when you say as soon as possible, is there a specific day or, uh, or, or time that you had in mind? And then Pat, the team leader, can say, uh, yes, end of day, Wednesday, 5 o'clock, it needs to be in. So now everyone is on the same page, and that has, that has taken any chance of misunderstanding out of the, uh, the situation. Now, someone might say, well, why didn't Pat, the team manager, just say that at the beginning? I don't know. Why does anyone not communicate their ideas specifically and make sure everyone understands? Because most of us make the mistake of thinking that people understand what we mean. So, so the, the one question, when we come back to what's the one thing you can do or the one question you can ask, it's to ask the other person to define their terms. Uh, you don't say it as that, but you'd ask the question appropriately. So it might, it would be, you know, so Tom, when you say X, you know, is there a specific, you know, whatever, or uh, uh, Joanne, um, you know, I, I hear you saying so-and-so, so-and-so, just so we're on the same page. Uh, may I ask exactly what, you know what I'm saying? And so when you ask the question that way with kindness and tact, mm-hmm. so it's not a matter of, of saying, you know, explain better what, you know, it's a matter of, of saying it in a way that you're, you're uh, uh, very diplomatic about it. it. What you do is you make sure before uh, you go do your thing that everyone understands what's supposed to happen. Yes. And clarity. Clarity, so powerful. Um, One other thing that I wanted to ask you is this. Um, You have eight key words that, and if you can, in the interest of time, if you can just give give us um, a brief description of what these eight key words are that you feel that could actually move a person to a particular side of an issue. Yeah, this is when a person doesn't really have to come through for you. It might be the customer service person, or it might be the the uh, person on another team, someone who doesn't have to come through for you, but you'd really like them to. First, you go, you know, you you handle yourself appropriately with the other five areas. Uh, but then what you do, so they, they want to come through for you. But then what you would do is you utilize these eight keywords. If you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. And what you're doing in that case is you're letting them know that, yes, you'd really appreciate it, that you're, you believe they can do it, you have confidence in them, but that ultimately, if they truly can't, if it's beyond their you know, control, you'll understand and that you value them more than the situation itself. So it would be, if you can't do it, I'll definitely understand. And then you might want to pause a few seconds and then follow up with, if you could, I'd certainly appreciate it. 
powerful stuff. You know, is is we're in the midst of of frankly a a very trying. I think a very trying environment, especially in the nature of the political debates that are taking place today. If you listen to all of these things, the propensity is for people to take sides and to, frankly, put themselves on one side of an issue and, and, and even risk relationships and friendships and so forth. You mentioned, and, and this is really a powerful context, you mentioned that there's certain things that people should keep in mind when, when listening to these discussions. What would you say those are? Well, that when you're in a discussion with someone else, that it's probably not just you and you and that other person. And this is whether it's it's uh, at a, you know, at a, a social gathering, a family gathering or whether it's online. There are typically a lot of people listening in. And so when someone is is arguing their point in a way that's rude and hurtful and name calling, don't get sucked into that. Instead, handle yourself with tact and with diplomacy. See that person as being well-meaning, even if misguided, in your opinion. And when you do that, what's happening is the people who are watching. See, most people are not either so far to the left or so far to the right that they are beyond uh, you know, any other thought process. Okay, Most people are somewhere either in the middle or they're a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, but they can mm-hmm. be persuaded sure. to a different point of view. But when they're watching these conversations online or off, now one of the things they're looking at is, okay, who has the best points, okay? But that's secondary, actually. What they're really watching is, who's more relatable? Who do I like more? Who, do I, who could I ask a question to and not get my head bitten off because I don't understand it 100%. And so when someone, uh, let's say, makes a statement on social media, that's on Facebook or something, and they say, people like you are the nastiest, most horrible people, you want people to die on the street and blah, 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 which of course is ridiculous because most people are good people and they, on both sides, most people want what's good and, and so forth. But when you can, instead of coming back with a, an insulting vitriolic comment like that, which just puts you on that person's level, if you can say something like um, Mark, and let's say the person's name is Mark, uh, Mark, I certainly appreciate the passion you have for this topic. And it's obvious that you care about people and and doing well by them. Uh, Like you, I also want to live in a country where we're able to, and then, you know, you, whatever it is that you both would like to see happen, which is probably the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just different way. Then you say, um, you know, our biggest disagreement would probably be what the best and most appropriate way to get there would be. So now you've taken this from a, a total, uh, you know, slugfest, a nasty kind of thing, and you've, you've reframed it from one of totally adversary to one where you've opened it up to two allies being able to logically discuss it. Now, a, a couple quick things. It, it, do people, does, will that person, you know, ever come to your side of the issue? Probably not. Will they even be polite? Maybe not. But the other people who are watching, are looking at you with a lot more respect. Absolutely. And see, that is, that is the key thing right there. 
That is that that is amazing. And you know, and I, I actually saw an example of this very thing uh, in a um, political event that was taking place um, by John McCain. And this was when he was running for president. And one of the people in the in the forum began to really have some choice words about his opponent that were frankly more on the personal side. McCain with such elegance and professionalism said, just a moment, no, this is a good man. This is a man that really has a desire to promote the welfare of the country. But I have to tell you, the only difference between he and I is that I don't agree with the way he's going about it, but he does want the best for all people here. And I have to tell you, people that I know were in the opposite side, philosophically of John McCain, had a completely different appreciation for this man and for his overall character. And I think that embodies exactly what you just said. Yeah. So, well, and that's, that's what we, I think, need to do more of. And, it, and uh, you know, it's not only the right way to be, it's actually much more persuasive. Exactly, exactly. Bob Berg, as usual, you are a joy and it's a privilege for me to take, take your time. I wanna thank you for your valuable input, for your wisdom, and I hope as you're listening to this podcast that you are able to take some of the material that you have heard today and apply it. You make yourself that commitment that you're gonna take perhaps the five secrets of genuine influence, everything ranging from mastering your emotions, step into the other person's shoes, set the frame, communicate with tact, and let go of having to be right as one of the centerpieces of the message today. Bob Berg, it is a pleasure to have you. I hope that you will accept our invitation in the near future to sit down and talk to you again so that you can share your discoveries and of your wonderful journey. Uh, thank you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us today. This is Paul De La Garza. It is a pleasure for me to have hosted Bob Berg. Take care and be well. <laughs>